Three, two, one. Check, check. Good. It's happening. Ah! You're checking. You're checking, and I'm I'm peeking. Unpeek. Hey. <laughs> All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are on episode one oh nine. Finally, cover. We've been covering the Situationist International for about a month, but this is the one book that everyone remembers as being produced by the Situationist International and Guy Debord, probably the figurehead, at least of the late period. The Society of the Spectacle, (laughs) in case we're not clear about that. (laughs) I remember this book. You you two know uh, my friend Jordan. I don't know what the right word. I wouldn't describe him as conservative, but certainly more like of a traditional academic person who likes to read like the classics. But from, I guess, more of a conservative side. And I remember him and I were doing like a bit of a reading group at one point. And I think he didn't really like know what this book was about and suggested it. And we started reading it. And he just was like, I'm not really interested in continuing this because it turned out to be just way more of a Marxist critique than he thought it was. I think he thought it was going to be more speak to like societal nihilism, which to some extent it does. But from like a much more left kind of material and like a kind of Marxist analysis perspective. Whereas I think like he's more interested in the question of nihilism as maybe presented by like a Nietzsche or someone like that, right? As opposed to kind of the more Marxist side. So Yeah, this is very much a precursor to Baudrillard in that sense, because Baudrillard will do the metaphysics stuff about reality having disappeared, whereas this is much more, I guess you could say orthodox Marxist in the sense is like, we, we are forgetting reality. It's still there. Point at it. Look at it. We can't forget about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean the 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 question of the real world will be interesting. But yeah, I see a lot of prefigurations, also some continuations of like especially like Walter Benjamin and some of the kind of revisionist Marxist stuff coming out in the early 20th century, but then yeah, a lot of second half of the 20th century and it's worth mentioning. That, I mean, if you just go to your go to your university library and search, you'll find all kinds of new articles still coming up, citing whether they're just trying to update the whole thing. Like, there's a book called Spectacle 2.0 for the digital age and social media. Lots on social media. The spectacle social media is an extension of the spectacle. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of, I don't really like to do news updates just because it kind of dates our episodes, but I found a little bit of news that I had to share with you guys. And I'm I'm guessing that you haven't seen it yet, but it r- relates to the spectacle and relates to the spectacle 2.0 or just hell world hyper real. So two days ago, I'm going to try to paint a word picture here. Two days ago on okay. the popular website, twitter.com, I saw a video. Mm-hmm. Heard of it? The video or Twitter? <laughs> I've heard. I've, I've heard of Twitter. You've heard of Twitter.com. Oh, thank I God. saw a video. I have heard of and Twitter. And on this nice. video was a guy, a streamer. Don't remember his name, but he was apologizing for watching porn because <laughs> oh, in this. a live stream he had apparently like clicked to a tab and then. His followers like zoomed in on the tab and found out what he was looking at. So already I found this on Twitter. It's about a live stream. 
we're already we're already a, in a degree of the hyper real. In this video, out of focus in the background is this guy's girlfriend who's crying into a Kleenex while he talks about porn. Wow. What? Yeah. So this is and Wait, I don't care. <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. I got I got to finish the rest of the story because this is the kind of thing yeah, there's it more. feels like this happens basically every week these days that you're like if I went if I sent a letter to myself back in time, if I sent myself a letter five years ago even, let alone 10 years ago, but just five years ago explaining what happened here to myself, I would think, you know what, it's over. We're done. <laughs> I'm not gonna say any more than that, but no, 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 we're done. Okay, so what happened? The reason this guy brought his girlfriend in soft focus, she's out of focus crying in the background while he talks and apologizes. The thing that he was apologizing for was watching AI-generated porn of people that he knows personally. Deep fake. Who are also famous, because he's a famous streamer, and they're famous streamers who are women. And he was watching, or got caught, I guess, got caught watching AI-generated porn of his own friends. Oh my God. And then decided that his girlfriend had to come and, and watch the video with him while she cried. And he, oh, he was crying too. So this is. Yeah, it was very emotional. <laughs> I don't know if I understand those emotions though. That's a very confusing scene you've painted for us there. Yeah. And then, and then all these kind of streamer, because I follow a lot of the, the Twitter streamers. It started to like all the kind of debate bros started talking about whether or not um like the ethics of watching deep fake porn <laughs> you know like is it is there something morally wrong with oh yeah we could talk about this is this is straight up baudrillard breaking news like what is what is an image <laughs> if you put because yeah. an ai porn it's like someone's i think it's a face on a different face right you can do this with like political figures also yeah yeah so it's putting exactly it's kind of like if you've seen those videos of like people yeah. But this is putting your friends' faces onto porn star bodies and watching it. Oh, and the other thing is that he paid for it, which is, oh my God. I think, breaking a rule of the internet is paying for porn. Oh, that's... But he also <laughs> paid to watch AI-generated images of his friends having sex. Oh, wow. That's weird. Tell yourself it. Tell yourself this five years ago. Tell yourself this 10 years ago. This is the world now. This is hyper real hell world. And I don't even want to, this doesn't really actually relate to the society of the spectacle, which is the topic of the day. But in terms of whether there is a real world underneath all the worlds, I mean, this this raises some questions. <laughs> wow. I mean, this should make a, they should reboot that I love you, man, make a, make a second movie, follow that up about this. I think this gets into like questions of what is the image, first of all, the, like philosophically, not personally, because personally, it's probably really violating to see your face put on a body that's getting railed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then what is the image? Do you have ownership of your image? I saw Beeple put out a, you know, the the artist Beeple, the, I don't know, really famous NFT dude. <laughs> oh. uh, vaguely. Because he also... Uh, this week made an image of Tucker Carlson doggy styling the green M&M &M girl 
Oh my god. <laughs> Cuz he's very he's very Tucker Carlson is very horny over what shoes the M&M girl wears because it has to do with the the woke left and all this stuff. So, I don't know. If you're going to pass a law that says people own their images, then people can't make the image of Tucker Carlson fucking a green M&M, but you'd also get rid of the the violation felt at at deep fakes and not having control over your own image being sexualized. But are we just all objects? This is the revenge of the object, as Baudrillard would say. I mean, you'd have to. I mean, you'd really have to. If you'd really have to fiddle with that law, because it also would depend on how saturated our media environment is with certain people's images, right? Like certain people are just much more visible. But those sort of political ones I've seen. Well, I think that's the reason that the AI can create some people and not others, because presumably you'd need like a large data set of images to be able to deep fake someone with their face at different angles, I would guess. And if you're doing their whole body, if you're just smashing a face onto some other body, then maybe not so difficult. But I've seen those political attack kind of <laughs> deep fakes in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's you know when you have vulnerable kinds of people or in in political office, then it can get problematic. Whereas, I mean, with Tucker Carlson, I don't feel bad because he constantly just he just uses his platform to attack people, and so he's just getting a bit of his own medicine. But for other people, it's not so good. So you can really just blanket that, and be like everyone now owns their own image. It's like oh my god. The question would be how to how to determine sexualization because tucker carlson fucking an m&m is definitely sexualization but then how do you legislate it to make one illegal and not the other how do you differentiate from parody like can you if you own your image can people make political cartoons of you so i yeah i'm glad i'm not i'm glad i'm not in charge of it <laughs> yeah glad i'm not on that ethics review board my god <laughs> My God. Anyway, yeah. to the topic of the day, we've been covering the Situationist International for about a month. As I said, this is their their apex output. And as Eric said, still being used, still being referenced. And we read just the first three chapters of it for today. But the Society of Spectacle, it, it might be the book, at least in my circles, whose title is dropped more than that of any other book. Because someone sees a commercial, they see an advertisement, something goes off on Instagram, Instagram, and then it's, oh yeah, well, of course, we live in a society of spectacle. And is that, I wonder if that, is that right? Is there any other book title that is referenced more as just its own concept? Like the work of art and the age of mechanical reproduction does come to mind. Hyper real, but that's not the type of a title of a book. Simulacra. <laughs> Simulacrum. Maybe postmodernism and uh, the cultural logic of late capitalism that yeah. comes up to Yeah, it kind of became like a, a meme, a meme, I, a meme sept. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. Anyway, we are here today to do something like a close reading. Um, just to see what it, what does it mean and what doesn't it mean? Because it doesn't mean every advertisement you see and it doesn't mean every political spectacle you see. He's kind of intentional about what it means. So, and Yeah, it doesn't mean the mass media either. That's kind of what we want to think of. The mass media 
is kind of just a reductive idea when you're talking about the spectacle. But it does have to do with images, so we'll talk a lot about that. And images, I mean, I guess implicitly we've been discussing them all along because the art aspect of the Situationist is all about taking what what classical pieces of art sort of like like done in the classical realist style and i don't know what is he drawing ducks on them or something like that almost like a kind of a kind of like a theoretical or a, a high art vandalism so it's about de what was that what was our word or um they're uh detournement yeah they're detourning the these images already so this this is almost like a, a totalization of the theory behind that, <laughs> of of taking images and 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 graffitiing them and and putting them up and and but but discussing it because the spectacle is more than just images. It's more than just things we see images on, like mediums, media. It's it's uh, it involves a lot. So when people do use this like meme, you know, a spectacle, it's often not completely grasping. I mean, I'm I'm guilty of this myself, but without completely grasping what Debord means by spectacle and 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 how it relates to to uh, social theory, critical theory. Yeah, for sure. I I use it that way too, just offhandedly. But in the way that he brings it up and the way that he develops it, there's no way to separate it from Marxist political economy. I mean, I think that's the the main point is you you can't. You can't use this independently of that. Even the first line of the book is a reference to capital. Yeah, it's almost like a paraphrase or almost like a detour and ma of of a of a paragraph of capital. So actually so yeah. can you read the first I'll read the first uh lines of capital and can you read the first uh line of the book? So like uh, aphorism one, you mean? Yeah, aphorism one. So the beginning of capital opens with the wealth of those societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails presents itself as an immense accumulation of commodities, its unit being a single commodity. Our investigation must therefore begin with the analysis of a commodity. Yeah, and then that is uh, transposed here in thesis one. I'm going to call them theses. I don't know. They f feels right to me. The whole life, quote, the whole life of these those societies in which the modern conditions of production prevail presents itself as an immense accumulation of spectacles. All that once was directly lived has become mere representation. At, at least that's what my translation says. My translation is pretty similar, but it says... In societies where modern conditions of production prevail, life is presented as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. Oh, that's interesting. So it's not a direct reproduction of Marx, but where Marx says commodities, we are now saying spectacles, plural, instead. So he does seem to be following like Marx's logic. And it, and it is dialectical here. He is, he is applying a kind of dialectical reasoning right like one thing creates its opposite and then once that thing develops to a certain point its opposite then becomes or its contrary then becomes significant and then as that develops you know you know that kind of dialectical reasoning process that like <laughs> hegel and marx have have 
developed and, and, and it's still to me a very counterintuitive way of thinking about things, but it produces texts like this. And then you got to try and figure out what's going on and understand that they are thinking in this way. And the other thing that's noteworthy is that Marx says this is capitalist production and de Boer says this is modern conditions of production. So I think implied in there, he could have very easily used the word capitalist mode of production, and he does elsewhere in the text, but he decides to call this the modern mode of production, as if there's something about capitalism that doesn't apply here. And I think we'll, we'll see that as we go through the text. The capitalism is being subsumed by something other than it, or sort of a growth that emerges from within it. A tumor. His use of plurals there is interesting too, because in, like you can say again this uh, about Marx's thing, the wealth of societies in which, this is the qualifier, in which the capitalist mode of production prevails, suggesting that there are societies in which the capitalist mode of production does not prevail, or that there are other modes of production. And so, I don't know what immense accumulation of spectacles is perhaps following that logic because the book is titled society of the society of the spectacle yeah. and so to use spectacles in the plural here is very confusing and perhaps it's also kind of trying to reproduce that that aspect of marx's statement is that there are other other modes of production other society other spectacles but we're not, we're, we're not going to get too far in before we say it has to, like, the commodity form has to be dominant and presumed in that domination as kind of a, a global market. Immediately, it seems like there are no other modes of production. We've talked about this a lot over the last month that the Situationist International, they have kind of a goal, and their goal is something about unity. And not unity as in hegemony, but unity as opposed to the way modern society is laid out and the modern city is laid out, which is what we talked about last week. Like this efficiency and specialization of all zones of life and, and the city too. You know, dividing um, rich and poor, dividing work and leisure. All of this leads to a, a fragmentation of human experience into being a producer all day and then a consumer in in your leisure time and these are completely separate realms work leisure and here the world is split into what he keeps calling the real or the or real life and then the spectacle and the spectacle is this it's a split from the real that's almost taking it over so direct or real life, and then this pseudo world of images on top. So this, I mean, Baudrillard comes to mind a lot here because Baudrillard is the one who says the real has disappeared. And we're not yet there. Remember, this is uh, like 1967. So he's, he's very concerned, de Boer, about taking care of this real or returning to it or asserting it or I don't know I don't know what you call his goals here because his goals are kind of opaque, but there's a fragmentation in the world and the fragmentation is somehow related to all these images, but we want to restore a, a sense of unity to it. 
I'll just direct quote just to hit the point home. Fragmented views of reality regroup themselves into a new unity as a separate pseudo world that can only be looked at. So the spectacle unifies, but it's, it unifies what we already have, which is the fragmented, the separate, the different forms of life, the ones that don't meet up. And I think he's trying to like get hit home that we have a psychological condition where our reality is just broken. And this is part of it. So that implies, I guess, I mean, I don't want to get into critiques right now, but I think it's just hard not to notice the way that's implying that there is such a thing as like, you know, a lived directly world or a, you know, real world or a, you know, unified world. And maybe that's just the like consistent with more. Well, it's consistent with Marxism, I guess, it, more than it is other kind of continental thinkers who we explore on this podcast, um, right, who tend to emphasize more of like disunity and like impossibility of like a final order and stuff like that. So obviously Marxist inspired stuff is still maybe in the business of trying to recover or create some harmonious, unified, like real world. I think well, yeah. that's, uh, I'm trying to figure it out, but I don't think it's Marxism that he gets this from specifically because he talks about this as the okay. technology of mass media and for us it's hard to like you know beam our mind back into the time except for the fact that kind of like i opened up with we're dealing with every week it seems like something that we would have never understood 10 years ago even us being alive from it but i think this applies to them as well because on one hand, this sounds like a kind of a shitty, we live in a society critique. But in 1967, this was the, the decade that most people got their first TV inside their house, at least in France. And they had like two channels and they weren't 24 hours. So their experience of, I mean, his experience of this fragmentation that he, he does say specifically has to do with the media technology is... I think maybe something that we can't understand, but if we if we frame it in that context of now, I think over the course of the 60s, it went from like 13% of, of French homes having TV to like 80% just over the decade. So it, it became that. It's, it's hard to imagine you know the immense development that's occurred over even just the 20th century never mind since like the industrial revolution electrification etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah i don't know if if just picking up what victor was just saying too um yeah the real world right like so does this fall under like we recently been talking about like rorty and his his kind of anti-representationalism where you have representations and you have the real world and representations refer to the real world and this is a view he calls representationalism and he just wants nothing to do with it he doesn't want realism and he doesn't want idealism or what he calls it just calls anti-realism he thinks those are both representationalist theories 
because they adhere to some kind of external referent that guarantees the truth of a representation. But I'm sure he would be immediately suspicious, and we're all suspicious, good critical constructivists of any claims about the real world, either the loss of or getting back to it. But again, I think there's more going on here than just something like that. You know how the Matrix film thinks it's about Baudrillard, and then Baudrillard was like, this is the kind of film that the Matrix would have made? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They should have just hmm. used this book instead. Because this book says, oh, behind everything, we can get we can get to the production relationships. And for him, the real doesn't mean like the experiential real necessarily. It's really about what we call material conditions as a representation. Who owns what? Who does what? And what is your like social relationship before being mediated by the TV that just showed up in your house that wasn't there? five years ago right what's that that line i know i know this steak isn't real but i don't care <laughs> yeah exactly and so many of the popular critiques of social media are doing the same thing if you read new york times then social media is the cause of polarization it's the cause of kids not going to the park it's the cause of radicalization as if this didn't appear before now the board is doing something a little bit different and a little bit better, I think, which is to say this is maximalizing an aspect that already existed in the split, the capitalist split of being a producer 50% of the time and then a consumer the other half of the time. And then being an owner in the capitalist mode of production or being a, a slave, a worker, in the capitalist mode of production. So this thing, the spectacle, is intensifying a split that already exists. And it's not like TV is responsible for it, but TV just allows it to become an absorber or a, uh, an energy form where all we ever do, and I see this, I, I mean, I see this clearly, all we ever do is talk about what the other person is talking about. So it becomes spectacle on spectacle, and then the conditions of who owns what or the conditions of who's making what never really come into question. And I think that's the thing that he's pointing to is our consciousnesses, and he says the word false consciousness a couple times, our consciousnesses have been absorbed into this one thing where it's the only, the only place that exchange happens, which doesn't deny that there's like a real economy in his terms, but all of our energy is being put in the same place. I don't think that's wrong either. That is some matrix. Falling back on the mass media, it's just like, I don't know if this is even a good analogy, but it's like, you know, like it's a one-way relationship, right? You sit in front of the television and it speaks to you. You don't speak back, right? It's a one-way relationship. And it has this this sort of it has this sort of end effect of 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 isolating and atomizing us, because again, sort of following that Marxist logic of of the commodity again, where it's it congeals. It's some it's like almost magical. It congeals. 
he kind of says the spectacle is not a collection of images. Rather, it's a social relationship between people mediated by images. That's one of his statements of what the spectacle is. It's a social relationship between people mediated by images. And that's what makes me think, you know, the real he's talking about is something like what you find in, in Marx's like humanist manuscripts, for instance, like it's a it's a social relation. So that I don't I don't think the real is like the real you know f- biophysical world out there. And that it, like when you watch a commercial for a car, it's not like telling you about the physical and, and specs of the car, right? It's just kind of presenting a lifestyle to you. This is a lifestyle choice. It's an image decision. It's it's a quality you're going to attach to yourself. It's not like, "Ooh, I better get the I better get the Dodge cuz it's like a couple miles per gallon better." I don't know. I mean, people do think that way when they're purchasing whatever, but I mean, that's not how it's presented to you. That's not so it's not like a a real pre-existing world like the representationalist problem. It's a reel of social relations that are now mediated just in the same way in, in sort of Marx and his analysis. Now here we have it mediated by the spectacle. It's a, rela- it's a social relationship between people that is mediated by images. Doesn't, so, doesn't the spectacle though reflect something about human beings? Like I think, like isn't it reflecting something true? Like so I, I guess I know I'm falling into critique here again, but like why is it always can like framed as being this external thing that kind of like pacifies us. Like, isn't it a creation, a co-creation of like human beings and it's stimulating things and it, and it's able to make us, I guess, passive to certain conditions precisely because to some extent it's an accurate reflection of human beings, right? It's not actually as alien and unreal. It's actually just, like a reflection somehow that then obviously mystifies and distorts in its own ways. But I guess I I would want to resist this kind of what seems like a bit of a stark divide or a stark kind of saying, okay, like it's this thing that is mediating in this like particularly inauthentic way. Um, But like, I think he, like if there was a reason it's working (laughs) because it's reflecting something true. I don't think wow. I would not say reflecting. I would say producing. Okay. I think this spectacle okay. is produced and yeah, yeah every one Definitely of us produced. every one of us even at the very at the moment right now we are contributing to its production. Exactly. But still it's not a reflection as much as a production. It's a it's a self representation, right? Like okay. you know, you know, when I was when I was reading this, I also got some you know very distant, very distant echoes of like second order cybernetics too, saying it's a self it's a self. I mean, in that language, it's it's self referential. It's not referencing anything outside of itself. It's and he, here he says it's it's um it's a it's a self representation of to the world, and it's superior to the world's. But the problem again with using that language of true and false, like is it something? Is there something true in it? 
I mean, that's this first section we're looking at is called the separation perfected. So there's something called a separation and, and, and some perfection that this development of the spectacle, this production of the spectacle brings it to. And the things that are separated are the reality and the image. But then you go, okay, so the image is false and reality is true. Great. Easy. He says, no, no, not so fast because the true false or the, the real and illusion dichotomy falls into then both sides. Reality can be true or false and the image can also be illusion, illusory or true. It doesn't work. It falls onto both sides of that separation. And in the end, the, the spectacle is the, is the unity of that separation, right? It's the unity of that separation. By the way, he does not let the binary between true and false last very long because he says in a true Lacanian form almost, but he says the split itself is split. So uh, I hate reading direct, direct quotes, but I'm going to do it. The spectacle that falsifies reality is nevertheless a real product of that reality. Conversely, real life is materially invaded by the contemplation of the spectacle and ends up absorbing it and aligning itself with it. So the split, because he says this is the, the spectacle is the perfection of the split, but the split already existed in Marx in the commodity and commodity fetishism because the commodity really in real life, which is not just you know, offline life, but in real life is a relationship of labor, of who made it. And as our real activity now begins to imitate this, the simulation, you can think especially of advertising, best example, because in, in that context, you have artists that start making art that's indistinguishable from advertisements, like this fucker Andy Warhol, who just paint suit cans. And today it's the same thing with, with like influencer marketing where being yourself means you need fake plastic cheekbones on your face to sell clutches because Kim Kardashian has fake plastic cheekbones to sell clutches. Yet at the same time, that simulation is still a product of real, what he calls real relations, which are labor relations or technological infrastructure, for example, like, Disney and, and CNN and Google, they all have owners and employees and janitors. And those relations don't appear in the products because the products conceal the very relations that brought that thing into the world. So even us, yeah, we're not outside of it, but we're making this social media shit we don't even know how we're, we don't even know the relations that brought this stuff into being. We don't know the janitors. And just talking back and forth, if we're going to sit here and be like, look at the dumb thing Tucker Carlson said and the dumb thing that Ben Shapiro said, we're taking only the content and the form disappears in the content. And you, you as listener, you're complicit also. You can't just talk about labor relations because then they're gone already as soon as you start talking about them. And that's what the spectacle does. It's appearance, mass media is concealed social relations in the same way that Marx's commodity was, except it also takes over your leisure time. You have no outside. There's no outside to 
capitalism when both labor and leisure, which is supposed to be spent doing your own shit, now leisure is commodified, commercialized, productized also. And we are that product. Us, right now. Fuck. Yeah. And <laughs> Fuck. It, I mean, in a way, right? You're... <laughs> Your your leisure time, what you want to do, how you want to spend your your vacations or your downtime in a, in a society of the spectacle is not really your decision. You have various options out there you can mimic, you can reproduce. You have various options out there that are given to you. You're not doing it. I mean, he, the example he kind of uses is is that your your gestures are not your own anymore. They're somebody else's, and he he almost uses that as like a, an example, <laughs> but I I think of it when I when I'm on my way to work or something like that, and 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 some somebody's with their kids and their kids are whatever doing their thing, you can tell that their behavior all they really are is just a bag of imitations of things they've been watching on YouTube. There's no real person under all of that. It, the kids are just imitating and reenacting and. They're expressing themselves via whatever the last fucking Disney movie they've watched was. They're not coming up with things for themselves. And and for good reason. Why would you? Why would you do all that work of, of enchaining a series of gestures of your own creation when there's all these options out there for you? Why would you do that? Economize, you fool, right? Like it doesn't – why would you want to be this romantic individual genius child? No, don't do it. But I mean, that's the that's the nature of it, right? Like, it's not your own anymore. Back in the mythic days, people would go to the temple and they would dance for the god in like prescribed steps and all that. And now we dance for TikToks following the previous person who did the TikTok dance. Yeah, TikTok, I'd rather dance for TikTok than some god that doesn't exist. TikTok is the dark god, and we must dance for it and and sacrifice our children to it. Yeah, like imagine something's horrible is happening to you, and you think there's some deity that's angry at you, so you have to go and find a bard who can sing the theogony to you, and then figure out from that how to sacrifice to that god properly in order to alleviate whatever problems you're having. That would be a pain in the fucking ass. If I'm having a problem, I'm just going to go watch TV until I find the right commercial that tells me what I need to do, what drug I need, or what what product I need to buy to make everything better. So much fucking easier, right? Why have gods that don't exist when we just have products, right? You know, I wish, I, I wish, like, I actually love the experience. This is like an unpopular take. When I get advertised something that I want, I'm like, sweet. Like, thank you for bringing this to my attention. The problem I have with advertisements is that normally it's trying to sell me shit I don't want. <laughs> it's like, yeah. do your job better advertising executives and actually show me something that I want. Well, there's an algorithm for that. I'm pretty sure based on your previous Yeah, and I hope it gets, and I hope and it gets better. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people will say that it's... But it, it doesn't just... It, it doesn't produce... I mean, sorry, it doesn't just give you what you want or reflect what you want. It also has to produce want. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, producing desire. I mean, none of this, it, 
I mean, again, like don't it's it's hard to talk about this without sounding like you're if you're making v- value claims about it. I mean, no, this is just what the spectacle is doing. <laughs> I mean, whatever the digital spectacle can track your previous activity and target ads at you better. Great, whatever, whatever. It's just it, that's just what's happening. The value judgment stuff is is for some other point some other stage of the process this is the understanding and the description process and so if that's what's going on then that's what's going on and we got to figure it out and is this description like is it because i noticed the invocation of kind of lacanian like language about the fact that our desire is not really our own desire right that in a way we're kind of just reproducing kind of like in lacan it's like you know the other's desire how is that different is it so is there's just so is this just an account of lacanian desire except when it comes to commodity and like images and media it's just like that's the content of it but the structure of desire itself is not necessarily changed it's just that the way that the media is interacting in that dynamic and images is unique in a way well, I think it's yeah, like I think it it touches on a lot of the same territory, but I mean it's a different way of looking at it. It's like you know Deleuze and Guattari is a different way of conceiving desire than the Lacanian option. You know, reading Anti Oedipus sure, sure. gives you a different you know reading reading one set of economic theories and reading another one where reading marginalist theory or whatever, like, you know, yeah, they're about the same thing, but they're different theories of the same thing. So some, they get something's right and something's wrong. Yeah. It's interesting. I actually remember when I was one of the first papers, graduate papers I wrote in my PhD, I was in like a Nietzsche class. Uh, and at the time, I think that might've been around the time when I first started reading the society of the spectacle. And I remember that that whole paper was really just about the way in which Nietzsche I actually gave like a kind of Lacanian reading of Nietzsche as trying to recover something or trying to get to something real, like, you know, and that for him, the role it's been a while, but was, you know, this category of like real life or true, you know, the, um, I'm forgetting the word, but but it's kind of like you know our our instincts for life, you know, uh, and then and then I feel like I remember comparing to Rousseau and comparing to Freud, and and I th- remember thinking that Debord, I mean, all this language too, even the title of the first chapter of the book, right? It's like separation perfected, and I think, you know, separation from what? I mean, I guess we were talking about that a little bit uh, already in terms of the unity, but you know, what is what what is separate separation from like something like what is that separation i think is kind of the question i'm wondering well we've de- we've dealt with this for a month it's a, a unity of life and a unity of life experience well we can get there with these first which never existed never existed <laughs> okay for him it did at least in terms okay. of like survival so you don't need a, a, a political economy of exchange value if survival is the goal of life. Yeah, you kind of have to. Fair. But sure. but the, here's the difference, though. Is the difference in in modern society, there is obviously like very little that is tied to survival for most people. But for example, what we talked about last week with the city layouts, 
there's certain cities where you also need a car to be able to live. Like you need it. Yeah, that's it's true. not a, it's not it's not optional. So need independent of political economy is the split that he's already talking about, but the original split already was diagnosed by Marx and he's not really moving that far beyond even even that bit. Except to say that our needs are wholly superficial to either living a good life and again this is questionable but what he means by living a good life but it means not having all these splits really yeah unalienated but it yeah you you kind of have to accept that this is since it's since it's fastened to marxism it's a historical argument there's a point where the capitalist mode of production was not dominant and then before then social relations looked different they're mediated and expressed on a different economic basis so you have to understand that it's a historical argument just just as baudrillard even has his whole historic what does he have that three or four stage argument of leading up to the simulacrum he kind of has that layered kind of pseudo historical development perspective as well that's that's here too the society appears at a certain stage of development of the modern mode of production he calls it and you know whatever i don't know again like is marx saying that earlier modes of production people live more authentically under them no he's not saying that it's just a different configuration there's a different superstructure yeah. a different kind of ideology that goes along with that but in each case the ruling class is the one that's expressing those ideas and the ruling class is the one who now administers this society of the spectacle the spectacle is administered by the bourgeois and it's there in a sense it's but they're they're out of the picture it's it seems to us it's just there for itself it's independent it's objective and we're involved in it but only as spectators because there's a one-way relationship we can't he says we can't talk back to it in a certain way it's just always like okay well what about <laughs> What about web web 2.0? Now you can sort of talk back to the internet, but I don't know. I don't think that changes a whole lot of the fundamentals of this argument, even today, is that it's a spectacle. I think if you need a way to read this more charitably as of like, oh, do we go back to something or anything like that? I think the thing that he is trying to wake people up to and the thing that he is very much successful at waking up or waking people up to because of the like how often this book is referenced and quoted is that we're not we're not post religion in this in the way that we sometimes believe. Because he says in, in 24, for example, the specialization of power, it still maintains hierarchy just as religion did, but now no one thinks that they're involved in, in unconsciousness. Whereas the technology, the mass media technology, is it exists only to continue the dream, to keep the dream going such that no one wakes up. So it's not necessarily pointing to a better time. It's just pointing to, you know, you're not better. We're not progressing. This isn't this isn't the march of history where we're all suddenly awakened and informed. 
consumers and individuals. No, we're we're part of the new religion and no one really realizes it. I, I love that. I love the I always love the Benjamin quote that relates to that when he says that the the age of technological reproducibility falsifies that Heraclitus's statement that every man when awake lives in a world of common and when falls asleep in a dream has a world of their own that falsifies that statement now we're all in a collective dream world kind of thing that's kind of what the spectacle is like as well we're in this collective dream world reality is gone and he even says he even kind of says he doesn't say it's gone here it's not again like the the reality part isn't part of the historical argument he just says you know, it's not something added to the real world. It's it's the very heart of society's real unreality. It's the heart of society's real unreality. And then at nine, he says, in a world that really has been turned on its head, truth is a moment of falsehood. Truth becomes a moment of the illusion. Or truth becomes a necessary stage through which falsehood has to pass is truth. And the fact that everything is a false choice also, it's not like you can go to the Soviet Union or to China and have a more real relationship because he says those are concentrated spectacles. You get to a personality cult because there, there's still no mechanism of response and feedback with the spectacle the spectacle produces and he's like really i i think this must have been like kind of controversial at the time because we've talked about may 68 this was written a year before that but he he's saying like maoism it's a personality cult of the spectacle it's a spectacle to make sure that people only think about mao and never actually think about their relations to what he calls real stuff production Right. So there's no, I don't know that he ever says there's a, a real place where this ever existed or does exist. All he notices is the splits of the splits and the splits of the splits don't need to be split. They could be something different. So I guess that's his. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I agree. I, d I definitely would never read him as thinking that there's some kind of like natural state we can return to. But I do think, you know, there's some kind of implicit space of kind of optimism. One of the things that I notice being framed throughout is this idea of the what the spectacle is causing in individuals. So, you know, kind of becoming passive spectators of the spectacle. And we talked a little bit about passivity and activity, which we don't need to get into that debate anymore but i think it's it does feel like there's a way in which even though i'm not reading him or as saying there's something we can return to but by pointing out the effect that this spectacle is happening having on social relationships as a kind of passivity implied in that and i think this kind of bears out is that there's some way of activating reactivating something more real um so it's not so much a return, but it's like by pointing out what the spectacle is doing, there's an implied call for some alternative possibility. 
which I'm skeptical of. It's also like, like he said, yeah, like here's, here's one of the moments in, in 16 where he says that the spectacle subjects living human beings to its will to the extent that the economy has brought them under its sway. So there's necessity to go out and buy the means of survival and the spectacle acts like a, a veneer or a paste over all of that. And it, it takes over from that that necessity, transforming that necessity into from from a kind of alienated production of commodities to to an alienated consumption of images, basically. So it shapes our it, it shapes our production productive relations in a in a in a different way, and it probably shapes our consumer behavior in a different way. And now if that's not becoming passive, then I don't know what is, right? In a sense that you're not, again, like I said, you know, you're not buying a car because of its specs. You're buying a car because of the, the image and the lifestyle that's presented to you, which has nothing to do with the car whatsoever, has nothing to do with the people making the cars, has nothing to do with the company or the factory or the brand. It's just something completely... It's just there. Is it false or true? I mean, even that's like kind of irrelevant, right? I mean, that's that's surplus. He calls that sort of surplus survival anyway. But like, I guess it, we could all admit at this point that like owning a cell phone is almost like a survival thing. Who can live without one anymore? And so where's the activity and passivity in that? <laughs> You're compelled to do this. You have a series of choices to make. Those choices are based on images. Those images present various lifestyles. Are they going to buy an Android or an a Apple, whatever? And then you have the Apple people, and they fight over which one's better with the Android people. I like I like the apps and the open technology. Well, no, but this one's so much more user friendly. All that's fucking irrelevant. That's the content of the spectacle. Who gives a shit? But the point is, you need a phone <laughs> to survive. <laughs> It's got all this other stuff, bells and whistles. But I mean, again, what's 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 before that? I don't think what in ancient Greece you need a you need a stone tablet to survive. No, there's, don't stop even don't even Nothing worry about that. that stuff. Yeah, there's no the worry. The worry that he yeah, has is with that. propaganda. The propaganda that you even have a choice because every choice is false. You're allowed to have a choice because it doesn't disrupt anything real. You are it, that's the, always been true. It can colonize your mental experience because you are already subjugated economically. So you can have your culture wars, you can have your pretend fights in the spectacle, you can make your choices in the spectacle just because none of that's real. You can vote for the PCF because they're going to do revolution. You can vote vote for Bernie because Bernie's going to do the revolution. But in the end, all of this stuff is spectacular. Or I like the way so he puts it. So if you it. want a way out, he doesn't give the way out. But if you want to, if you want any way out, you have to at least understand how profound the problem is. And just because something has never been true doesn't mean it never will be true. Or I like I like the way he puts it that the the, yeah, the so choice exactly has already so been made, and the the spectacle is a celebration of those choices that have already been made. And it's a latent justification. Yeah, I mean, I think I I like I like the way that that pills put it there. That like just because it it has never been the case doesn't mean it's not going to be the case, 
or and and specifically that it's about pointing out the like how fundamental the problem is i think my view is just that the problem is actually more fundamental than just the spectacle the problem is human beings the way that they are <laughs> like so the spectacle is just a production of human beings uh but the, but i feel like the 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 profundity of the problem doesn't stop at the spectacle it stops at the kinds of creatures we are so i'm in a way i'm a, i'm more of a doomer than him <laughs> well his solution to the problem was shooting himself in the heart uh, well i i think that the way did he oh yeah he he went out he went out with a bang literally yeah not so great in the end there i didn't know that shit Oh, I think the way, it, like the way it continues from Marxist analysis, does bring it down to that level, right? Because humans, like, it, it comes. Yes, sure, it comes always from the need to survive. We need food, we need clothing, we need those basic things, we need shelter, and that you know, this is an extension of that. <laughs> you know, I I don't know. I'm not. I, I don't want to go too far with that. But it it is in it is in Marx there, right? There is there is attention to these needs, these basic needs, and so if if the spectacle is an extension of capital in a certain way, then that sh that stuff should already be in here, and it is. He says surplus survival. So he, he makes that sort of point. So it's not it, it's not like it it leaves out the human and like those fundamental things I don't think, but I mean those those things fall into the background right because consumption we're not thinking about survival when we're consuming, even though that's what we're doing when we go out and buy food right are we thinking are we, are we counting calories, <laughs> if so why, but m most in most cases we're buying our favorite brands we're buying the foods we're used to, we're not making survival decisions so that stuff's kind of irrelevant even though That's it is true. it does underlie it in some very fundamental way it's not factored in because we've in a way we've moved past all of that we're not shipwrecked sailors trying to find water and shelter from sun and, and, and vitamin c so we don't get scurvy we're 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 entertaining ourselves if i can point to one philo philosophical moment in here that I thought was good, but he never elaborated on it because he barely elaborates on anything. It's just what all of our problems are the same cause and the cause is the spectacle, which, you know, gets tiring. I, I That's why I wonder kind of who the audience is for this. It must be a, a public audience or something like that. Well, it's, it's almost like a... Sloganeering, right? Because see, some of these were some of the most popular things people would graffiti around on on sixty eight. Some of these things, yeah. Well, he says the soul. What aphorism was that from? Pills. Which one? The one that you were just reading. The quote. What aphorism? That wasn't a quotation. That was me. Which one? Oh, oh, sorry. I thought I thought you were just gonna read. Something oh, I was going. From, I was gonna from... twelve. 12, he says the sole message of the okay, spectacle, okay. and you guys have heard me say this, everyone's heard me say this because I love it. What is good appears, and what appears is good. So it, it's a monopoly of appearances, and this means that if you see it's good. And this, I, I think, Victor, this might, if we went into it a little deeper, I know we're kind of nearing the end instead of the beginning, but if we went into it a little deeper, you can see this as, a, co a coherent manipulation of human experience in that, yeah, you're going to think what good appears 
or what what is good appears if that's the only thing that you see and if you're told every day what your needs are you're you probably don't have the psychic resources to defend against that and i think that's part of what he's calling this this false unity here but his little philosophy point i mean i agree with that i think that's true that like what he's describing i think my sort of black pill doomer is that like people want to be told what to do like most people like i think that that's no different than before when people like the, the attraction of religion in like medieval times uh the fact that those things became so popular i feel is is indicative of uh, kind of existential condition of, of of uncertainty and looking for an answer and effectively looking for someone just just we're primed for some force to tell us what to do and it was religion and now it's consumerism i don't think anyone actually listening to this podcast would would disagree with you because all of, we do this podcast and <laughs> okay. they listen to it because we can be like we are outside of it we're not in it which is, of course, we can pretend a we're outside of it. Yeah. Here's his philosophy point yeah. that I want to elaborate on, if I can, real quick, to finish this up, because he says yeah, yeah. the spectacle inherits the weakness of the Western philosophical project. So he's doing historiography. Western philosophy is one project, and back to quotation, which attempted to understand activity by means of the categories of vision. And it is based on the relentless development of the particular technical rationality that grew out of that form of thought, which is for him vision. So we now have appearances replacing re reality. Plato was worried about it. Baudrillard celebrates it in, in his weird way. And if you want to call the Western philosophical project one thing that kind of starts with Plato, you go... Like the cave allegory, what is reason? Reason's the light, and the truth is the sun. And what's the soul like? The soul is like the eye. The soul is like the chief among the senses, Aristotle says. And then, like you just said, we got the Bible God coming in, and John says, God's light. There's no there's no darknesses, darkness in him. And I, I, like, what does light, what does light and sight provide it is distance it is separation from things separation from objects and you have these external um non-reciprocal relationships because you can see stuff from far away like touch you can't this is merleau-ponty you can't touch anything without it touching you that's mm -hmm. a reciprocal relationship mm -hmm. so to, to have knowledge as a form of sight Sight is our project, and this is the end of the project. Now, I don't think that ideas matter, and I don't think this is like a causal thing that we've been working towards mm -hmm. the whole time. Sure. But I do agree with him that there is a different way to conceive of it. And I wish he spent some time on it because I would, I would be fascinated by it. But he's moving on. But just to Does think he not of have a like, more what if philosophical work? Well, we read some of his stuff on the Watts riots and on on the city. We'd right. have to read uh, his comments. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have like a fully developed comments. We'd have to read or something. Yeah, I think we'll do that soon. But 
Like specialization means distance. It means like a scientist with a cold-eyed view of reality. And this is like the culmination, not the, not the effect, not like it was caused by an idea, but it is the culmination of that sort of world where everything is fragmented. So if we can go back to some sense of the one or the limitless or we're all connected, I think that would be in his mind a better basis for not just a sociology, but an, an ontology that we can, we can hardly get back to. I think we can sense it, but it's hardly there anymore. Yeah. I think he, he does say, um, the vision is the most abstract of the senses and the most easily deceived, he says. And it's the most, he says, readily adaptable to present day society's generalized abstraction which I believe he's saying is occurring through this spectacle, generalized abstraction. So vision is the most conducive to this. It's a, it's a pointing out our, our modern ocular centrism, right? Vision is the dominant mode of perception. I don't know, whatever, whatever McLuhan says about it. It's, it's linear, it's sequential, it's geared towards logic and modern thought. And the, and the spectacle is, is totally taking advantage of this from, from our, our visual, our reliance on visuality. We, be, we began this talking about pornography, which is a, which is a <laughs> eminently visual activity. <laughs> Wiping your ass is a pretty visual activity too. I don't. Is it? Well, you, I can't look at my ass while I wipe it. Well, you got to check. How do you know when you're done? How do you know when you're done wiping? Do you know some people don't check? <laughs> oh my some god! Freaks! Oh my god! What the, what the hell? I don't check. You you have a mirror in your toilet or something? What's going on here? No, no, you don't look at you don't yeah, look you at. Gotta the look, at <laughs> yeah, look at that. Look at that. See if there's anything left. Yeah, that kind of checking. That kind of. I got a bidet, you bitches. Yeah. Still got to do a. Still got to do a. <laughs> How quick are you check. liking that? <laughs> still got to do a visual. Check. It's visual, and, and I don't know. I I came by. I come by these sorts of products again through commercials and and the internet. Can we can we do five minutes of critique? I'm, I'm I've been holding my mouth shut, and I know I feel like I've been doing all this critique this whole no, time. No, I I know I've been trying to. I want to bust it out to be like this is why this book is a big deal, and I can understand if you've never heard in any of this before. If you're like an artist, then this would be like really inspiring if you've never heard it before it'd be really inspiring if you feel all these things kind of like at a a non non yeah. theoretical level then it would be great but i found this so tiring to go through it's just like irrefutable yeah. assertion after irrefutable assertion yes. and you're like exactly. okay where did this come from where draw me some Thank lines you. tell me when this happened tell me why this happened and tell me like the development of cause and effect that led to this thing. And I know that's not the point, and I know I'm probably not the intended audience, but this thing just made me be like, I wanna, I'd, I'd rather read Baudrillard. I'd rather read someone who, but also, <laughs> all right, I gotta shut myself up a bit. I don't think he's writing for philosophers. I don't even think he was a philosopher. He was intending to be provocative, and he was, and look, the, the back of my book says this, the Debordian analysis of modern life resonates more deeply and darkly than perhaps 
even its creator thought possible. From the New Yorker. So the spectacle justifying itself. I I don't know. I wanted way more from this text. It was extremely repetitive and it just accounted all problems up to a singular cause and the cause's name is the spectacle and I'm like, "Come on, dude. You can do you can do a little more than that." Yeah, well this style is certainly a lot to get over cuz it is aphoristic. These are theses. <laughs> These are just numbered theses. And you kind of have to spend time with them because it's like there's a packed a lot. There's a lot of complicated sentences here and you got to kind of unpack what's happening. It's not it's not presented in an, in an academic way with an introduction and a thesis and a series of paragraphs with with details and, and discussion. <laughs> it, it's not presented in that style at all. So it's very frustrating. Because you got to pick up, you got to be like, okay, when's he going to come back to this idea? Not to, not for like thirty more theses or something, and then even like sometimes only briefly in the in certain theses, and they're all different lengths. So sometimes some of them are just one line, some of them are big chunks, and everything in between. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult to just sit down, read through it, and then get a sense of what's going on. You have to really like go back through it and look at each one and try to make connections to other ones i don't know i think your i think your time would be spent better on different books yeah i feel like there's just better books to read that 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 unpack the claims a, like a lot better a lot more extensively i'm not as familiar with baudrillard but from what i do know i get the sense as pills was saying that would be a good example uh and i think lots of other philosophers touch on these themes uh so it's not clear to me why and I remember that when I first read it that few years ago, my experience was very similar where I just felt like, what, why is this so like well regarded? <laughs> like this is not philosophically all that robust. And, and it seems like this person is saying stuff that a lot of other philosophers were saying at the time. So maybe the answer to that question is just because it's associated with that kind of artistic movement of the situation is international so there's kind of a a linkage to a certain cultural movement and artistic movement that was happening at the time that adds an aura of importance to what in my opinion is just not that robust and yeah there's rich moments there's flashes of insights of course uh but it's it just felt thin and shallow to me at times because it was so based on assertions we were kind of talking about this in our group chat and I was expressing frustration about how it was like aggressively assertive and just like making these claims. And Eric, who's being much more generous to the text, you know, well, it's aphorisms, you know, it's supposed to be like this. And that's fair enough. I just felt like, you know, there's a lot of philosophers who I think are a lot more richer who use that aphoristic style, Wittgenstein, Nietzsche, who really unpack their claims in a, in a way that I felt that this this text just doesn't do. So maybe the society of the spectacle is exactly the type of book that the society of spectacle would produce. Next week we're doing uh, <laughs> philosophical investigations. Uh, no problemo. That's a good book. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I like if you spend, cause obviously it's not easy. You got to spend time with it, figure it out. 
if you spend that kind of time with this text, would would you get as much out of it? <laughs> and how much of Wittgenstein's popularity is just analytic philosophers kowtowing and bootlicking and how much of it is no Wittgenstein's chance. really actually onto something. Oh, no. I mean, I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying there's definitely a mixture in there. There's no, there's no institutionalized form equivalent to analytic philosophy that has a bunch of people that'll rally around the board to defend them like Wittgenstein has. And yet, is Debord just less valuable than what Wittgenstein's no, written? Uh, I wouldldn't jump to that conclusion, but well, there was an institutional even, even aside advantage from who's better, even if we measure this in a weird ass boxing match of who's the better aphoristic writer. still, if you think of yourself as a leftist and your primary activity of a leftist like ours is disseminating opinions on platforms owned by billionaires then you are a spectacular leftist. Sure. And you know now we know what spectacular means. It's fake-ass shit, culture war, fake-ass shit. The right exists because they talk about the left. The left exists because they talk about the right. And it's a reinforcing mechanism so that you never actually look at anything that involves actual ownership, you could say real ownership, or real labor relations. So everyone's a fucking fake. And that's something that he was way more right about now than he was even when he when he wrote it. Yeah, no, that's fair. I and I agree with I, I want to be clear, though, that for me, it doesn't come down to whether or not I agree with the text. Like, I think Wittgenstein is someone that I happen to just philosophically agree with what he's up to in that book in philosophical investigations. But Nietzsche is someone who I have, like, really strong disagreements with. But I feel does a much better job of 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 walking you through what it is they're talking about so like Nietzsche will spend aphorisms giving kind of mocking accounts of what like you know sometimes mocking not always accounts of what he's arguing against uh, and I felt that this was much more declaratory if that's a word it just was like declaring that this is the way the world is but yes I mean I still think that all in all the analysis what Pill said I don't disagree with him you know he's onto something real in this text about the effect and spectacular uh i was thinking also briefly about something i saw the other day there's like the biggest youtuber i think is is mr beast if you guys know who that is yeah uh, I saw and, that. And, he, and, and he recently had like it was funny because he made a video about how he paid for like a thousand people to get their eyesight back and everyone was talking was like criticizing him and like yeah i mean because he's turning i guess something like that into a spectacle. Uh, yeah. But the reaction was kind of funny to me, just the way that they're like, he's like, I'm using my money to actually help people. But I guess, anyway, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, I mean, people were, yeah, I saw a bit of that. Yeah, people were com either complaining that he's just doing it to get views, which is a prepackaged response to literally every single thing you see on anything. I don't know why anyone bothers to even say that. And other people were like, no, he's bringing attention to how shitty healthcare is in the States because he was paying for Florida. I mean, again, those are that's the that's the spectacle there, like that that response. Yeah, <laughs> those are all prepackaged responses we've seen before. Everything you have ever seen is for views. That's the only point of doing anything yeah. on the internet at yes. all. I mean, yes. All of it goes and, without saying. They're, they're, <laughs> speaking of your charitability to Nietzsche about making claims and then diving deep into them, 
what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. What does that apply to? Does it apply <laughs> to cyanide? Does it apply to inhaling carbon monoxide? Just a little bit of it. That makes. But I think he actually. But if you. But <laughs> yes, I agree. Just that one aphorism by itself. But if you pay attention to everything else he says, I think he's pretty concrete about the value that exerting yourself will have in your life. That the most meaningful things are things that you push yourself to overcome. It all fits in with his view of like overcoming, self-overcoming as the, the, the kind of formative struggle. So yes, on its own, I agree. But I yeah. think if you if you read it in context, it makes sense. I mean, I think if we say those things and bring that level of charity to this, we could say something similar. And and, and in a way, you know, Debord at least <laughs> I'm a fucking this is a low blow, but like I mean, yeah, at least Debord's not caught up in the middle of like fucking far right debates right now, as far as I know. <laughs> maybe he is. Maybe maybe he's going around on those right wing social media things like Nietzsche is. But I mean, at least he's got that going for him. But the point is, if we brought that level of, of of patience to this text, I'm sure those same sorts of things would come out. And I'm not gonna. It's not true. evidence, but I mean, this wealth wealth of articles. I'm sure if I did a, a brief search on Nietzsche, I'd find the same thing. But much more, less culture studies, more philosophy. Here, it's just reams of articles using DeBoard's theories to talk about poverty or to talk about social media, et cetera. And I, I think it's it would be an interesting exercise to look at what these people are getting out of DeBoard. And then we go back to this text and look at it and be like, is it there? Is it there? Maybe it is. Like Best and Kellner, the famous postmodern writers, wrote that for DeBoard, the spectacle is a tool of pacification and depoliticization. It is a permanent opium war, which stupefies social subjects and distracts them from the most urgent task of real life, which is recovering the full range of their human powers through revolutionary change. Okay, so if they can get that out of this, then I'm sure we can, we can do... I mean, what you said about Nietzsche... Sounds a lot like this, self-overcoming, recovering human powers through revolutionary change, collective action, that sort of thing, right? It's here. Yep. It's less individualistic, granted. It's more Marxist, granted, but it's here <laughs> framed in this way. So, I mean, it's not yeah, like I mean, it's bankrupt of ideas. It's, it's No, totally. It's, I mean, I said, I said I also disagreed with Nietzsche, by the way. But yes, I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not saying it's bankrupt, but anyway briefly pills before you talk i just wanted to say speaking of nietzsche i really enjoyed really really liked your use and abuses of history uh nietzsche video i think that'd be a fun thing to talk about one day but anyway go on thank you um huh, i guess wrapping up yeah oh that opium the opium war thing that's a direct quote from this text i think it's in, yeah it's uh, number 44 is it chapter okay. three yeah because the opiate war is like we're gonna just bring a whole bunch of addictive drugs into into the Chinese populace and get them addicted to it so they're too True. stupid to ever be able to fight back because they just want to they're True. they're all addicted and that's yeah. the thing with the with the spectacle the opium of the masses yeah he says he says it's a, a permanent the spectacles of permanent opium war waged to make it impossible to distinguish goods from commodities or true satisfaction from a survival that increases according to its own logic yeah you you create the need and then police its distribution 
for the owners. And that survival that increases according to its own logic was kind of what I was trying to say earlier is that that's that, that foundation of, of necessity that this stuff is built on. I don't know how you would disagree with that. I'm excited to like looking forward in the book. I'm especially excited to get to uh, five and six, which are time and history and spectacular time. So maybe we'll do All that. Right. Yeah, I want to get into some of the stuff on celebrities too. As the what is he, the apparent experts on real life or something? Yeah. The, the the celebrity is the apparent individual that absolutely obliterates individuality. Yeah. And he speaks of movie stars and and Mao in the same sentence. Yeah, the, I wanted to ask cuz I'm I'm I've been bouncing this word around in my head a little bit. But post-Marxist. Now, the board is unabashedly Marxist. He's Marx is kind of the only actual reference in this book even though it's mostly indirect. And uh I think you'd call someone like Baudrillard a a, a Marxist who got over it. <laughs> reformed would you see that in this text because i think a lot of the uh a lot of the buzz around it is still kind of, it, it wants to lose the revolutionary aspect of it and just deal with here's how the here's how social media is giving you eating disorders <laughs> or seeing at least that the, the proletariat class is no longer like something applicable for marxist analysis no, I would I would ask the question: Have post-Marxists used Debord? Because he's before the po post-Marxism is seventies, right? Was it Chantal Mouffe? Was it the first person to coin that, or or was yeah, it Laclau uh, and Mouffe together? I think it was coined about them, wasn't it? Oh, it might have been coined. I, yeah, I think they was... I think they coined it in in their book in the seventies. Um, I can't remember if they did. I mean, I actually deal with them a lot in my dissertation. I don't know if they actually use the term post-Marxist, but they have a lot of criticisms for doctrinaire Marxist, which might be why people called them that. But they might have used the term; it's possible. I'd like anyway, to. Re I I'd like to recoin it. Yeah, for this. Remint it. No, I. I don't Remit. mean specifically for this, but like the the turn from this analysis and all its parallels with sort of postmodern theory. Um, not the lib appropriation of Debord. That's the that's not post-Marxist, but actually True. like saying there's actual problems with Marxism in the sense that these critiques can no longer apply. And Debord implies that while never moving away from Marx, which kind of makes him not a non-Marxist, but a post-Marxist. He says this, the relations of production in terms of images are no longer the same critiques as those of the commodity. I'd like to get into that more if we could. Yeah. All right. I got to correct Sounds myself. It was, the term first appeared in 1985 in Hegemony and Socialist Strategy. There we go. That's where 85. it came from. That makes sense. Laclau and Mouffe coined the term yeah. in 85. That's where it came from. But I mean, yeah, it's fair to say. Yeah, Guy Debord's definitely like gesturing in that sort of like direction. But right. I don't think he's left behind the fundamentals of Marxism in quite that way. <laughs> All right, spectators. You've heard us talk on the internet. Now we invite you to comment on the internet and we can just keep the cycle going endlessly. Yeah. But we'll talk at you next talk, week. And talk thanks for listening till we return. <laughs> All right. Doing this just for views or we're trying to bring attention to the uh, terrible state of uh, podcasting in general? That's the question. 
Victor, go feed your cat or your your friend's cat. All right, would you say they're meowists? God, cut 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 that out, please. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. It describes a lot of people I know. All right. <laughs> Cheers. See ya. Oops, I forgot to stop.